Thank you for supporting our True Crime 49 Patreon. Please enjoy this episode. Inches in Mercury. The small peoples of the jungle, portrayed in Rambo films, sit hunched over the giant roots of these ancient trees and the older man has something shining in his hand that's aluminum. It has been shaped into a farming utility tool. The old man is telling a story, rolling the object in his hand, his one lower tooth is squinting at you as he's describing something in the dialect of the jungles. And then he becomes excited. The equivalent of there, there, and he's pointing into the sky through the canopy of trees at a humming line of old propeller planes. Military cargo, the wind slitting past the blaring motors and catching black and white war film. Up over the Burma Road, 700 bloody miles to poor China. Nanking weeping over the horizon, a beautiful daughter in the eyes of the Japanese invaders, invading into history and securing their own names amongst the fires of the damned. There was a litter of aircraft aluminum scattered along the mountainscape and villagers for centuries would have aircraft-grade aluminum parts, tools, and wedding scepters, and magic trinkets. A young lieutenant looking down into the blackness of the dry jungle night, he likes his old plane right where she is, humming safely up here and still wrapped around him and his brothers. All of war-torn China fed only through these plains in the night. The motors are running hot in the wind. The big green plane with black stripes is flying in the only hope around. And it's in the form of bullets and fuel and emergency medical supplies. And then the splurging on morale. Sparing the room for a few crates of food. Barreling into the night, the wisp of lonely small arms fires, no doubt whisking through the air and lonely bullets out there in the night, coming up from men perched in trees, trying to stay out of the rain. Secure enough behind enemy lines to pop off a few rounds as the thing crosses over the blotted moon and the satin clouds of a world killing and raping and stealing life itself from every eye that dares to look upon it. The C-47 was a cargo plane, heavy motors pulling the heavy plane in radio silence, flying by a compass that is bouncing and floating white kerosene, timed out only on a combat stopwatch over a map stitched in silk. Calculated to be somewhere over the old road. No navigator to speak of, just Midwestern college kids, one with a lieutenant pin clipped on his lapel. She is flicking a few switches, looking down into the darkness, flying into the clouds over the battlefields, flying like a valiant with nowhere to run to. Through the night, the bullets from below silent up here. Some come to apogee. The arc, beautiful, lost in energy, alone. The young man's plane zips just feet above. Some bullets begin to tumble back down up here. The belly of the plane, almost at fingers touch from some of them. Some of them, though, whizzing up and past to make a new star in the heavens, but never punched through the fuel lines, or never punched through the blood pumping prayers in his aorta. Cloaked in the prayers of their own mothers when they put the half bottle of milk out on the sill, still for the milkman, even he would notice the farm boys are over the world of flame now. Even he prays for them, the little boys with tussled hair, 
and Mama's memories with milk on her lips. She wants to only kiss him and smell his hair, lifted upon the wailing of the poor women and girls and the dying soldiers in the onslaught dying confused on the homeland of the ancient peoples of the old dynasties, blasted apart with their great-great-grandfather's own gunpowder. The scribbled and hurried Chinese ink pleading to the world upon their own paper. A plea that they are being raped and murdered into oblivion. And many of our good young boys went down into the night and into the oblivion, the silk map stitched into their flight suits, the chocolate bars for the local girls, and the rascally midnight compasses now burning in the wreckage of how many good young men who fell valiantly to save them burning in the night. The clawed hand, blackened and frozen, clutching at the air that was so close only a few terrible moments just before. The old pilot awakes in a fine leather seat at altitude far above it all. His wife is asleep and he is jealous out the window for a moment. A breath and clears his eyes in the hum of the jet engines. Burning up here through the ice crystals, the Learjet forms around him suddenly, every rivet and each spline of the turbines and the jet fuel as old Ted Stevens, the decorated lieutenant, snaps out of it. Waking, he pulls the blanket over his wife. Maybe he pats her hand and kisses her soft temple. Only once, around the hearth of a fire with only a few of his men, Ted recalled only once. When they were up late, locking in the plan of attack on some bullshit scheme that they would need to shoot down. He had come to it in passion, allowing himself to say it in the open air. Did that guy gravel? Had delayed the legislation as his strategy. Waited them out, starving on the plain of the battlefield, waiting to everyone to falter so he could sweep in on her. Ted had caught sense of it in the wind and was rescheduling his whole agenda. He was going to go down and meet him on the Senate floor in Juneau. This bastard was trampling the fine wooden halls and when old Ted went to go meet him there, it was because of that, he said, and he sniffled in the whiskey vapors that clouded his eyes and the tears ran free in front of his brothers that one and only time when he said it out loud. The whiskey had a sobbing finish at the last that that Mike Gravel had taken her from him and that he'd stolen her away and he would have traded all the medals and the honor to take his old officer's pistol or some of his tools out of the survival kit. Gritting his teeth he must have seen her in the coals of the fire in the beautiful hearth and he wept and said finally that he would lay them at the man's feet if he could have put the life back in her broken body. And so he'd kiss her, gently, one last time. A woman, non-combatant, dying on the crosswinds of the runway never made yet, of what would become Ted Stevens International Airport. The ground crying out of her blood shed at the crosswinds in the grass that would one day become through martyrdom, the 10,000 foot long north-south runway now only bloody marked out by her alone in the slit grass. 
The Learjet approach was enough power let off of the frame to glide in mathematically so as not to come in too hot. The pilot is cycling through the punch list, everything was perfect as they crossed over. And her eyes still believing in her husband, the blankets thrown as the old pilot could feel whisking mindlessly over the close tarmac and the lights below. When the crosswind came upon them and he felt it when it stole the wind speed from the one wing and it dropped and the other wing finally free of carrying all that dead metal soared up into the heavens. As the other side went underneath and they watched it happening, the pilots knew from the situation of the juice in their guts and in their inner ears to know they were upside down and crashing to the ground, biting in. Terrible. The pilots knew it in detail, but for her it was just so brutal. He knows he held her hand, going in. And when they awoke, the old pilot was blinking and smiling up at St. Peter and the angels, but then it was only the rain and the blood. And the oily bastings of jet fuel all over her and all over them, weeping and sobbing and throat coated and heart is broken, wretched in the jet fuel. He knew better, damn it, that the conditions were for icing on the wings, but not that big of a deal. Assuring themselves seconds before touchdown and the crosswind came asking for what was no longer there. When the one wing slipped just below the velocity needed in airspeed, and them like the old bullets, and now her on the slick grass, falling away from Apogee, tumbling away in the blur, and in the sting of the jet fuel. It went in hard, following in on the wounded little wing. She slipped from this world like a child, and you could see it in his eyes from that day onward. Ted Stevens served as Alaska's U.S. Senator from 1968 to 2009. Born in 1923, Stevens served in the U.S. Army Air Corps during World War II, flying with the 322nd Troop Carrier Squadron, who supported the famous American volunteer group, the Flying Tigers. Stevens received the Distinguished Flying Cross for flying behind enemy lines, the Air Medal, and the Yan Hai Medal awarded by the Chinese national government. He was discharged from the Army Air Force in March 1946. Denver, 1952, Stevens married Anne Mary Sherrington, who worked at the State Department. The following year, they moved to Alaska, starting their beautiful lives as they had five children together. Twenty-six years later, Senator Stevens would be serving his state flying to Juneau on a special session. On December 4, 1978, a Learjet 25C, on approach to Anchorage International Airport, was hit with a crosswind, killing five of the seven on board. The senator was unharmed physically, yet Anne did not survive. In the days of White Alice, the Cold War being argued now among the old warriors with their silver hair and their paunchy bellies grudging the honor of their fallen comrades in the houses of law, deemed worthy of the people. The bloody hands of sacrifice standing in a suit on the Senate floor in America. The old microwave antenna were strategic, 
enough to hear the heartbeat of the old man in Kremlin. Who awakens in the night, the Air Force leaps with raised eyes, their steady hand on the long blade. Far, far away, the old man in Russia stirring in the ornate walnut halls. Alas, the radio man ear bent for the Defense Department gives the all clear. The old Tsar was only stirred and summoned his Russian mistress to his chambers. All of America saluting and thanking her and praying blessings to the girl sent from heaven, maybe who is in the eye of the man whose missiles cause us to stand ready through the night. The old man savored his mistress and the electricity stayed fulfilled in the wires of the antennae. The half-black little native kids were forever ostracized across the villages. These conscripted sons and daughters half their beautiful mottled freckles and beautiful eyes left to blow in the breeze like the old barracks, standed and stranded in his bestest Played out over lead chip paint, among the horizon of little spruce trees and the sea of alders blowing distant now the base is long closed, and the old copper wires are dead in the walls echoing the state of the art, sold across the hoods of car dealerships and soap commercials. The Russians were hungry and sold us all of their titanium. They laughed in Russian at the foolery of so many American businessmen making deals on the hush for this very strange and almost unworkable metals. They never knew until much later that chuckling to themselves the old American Air Corps had fronted all of that money and collected the largest pile of titanium the world had yet ever known and melted the nearly unworkable metal forging it out and cooling it in a deviant shape. And they gave to this thing a terrible power plant, too, in fact. And the thing would go so fucking fast that it had to be made too big on the ground, seeping noxious fuels through the seams, until the demon was glistening through the air molecules multiple times the speed of sound heated to a stinging touch, poison gases coming into full power, blowing a jet wave like from the sun. Up here in our atmos, the two engines were jealous to exist and they, and they pulsed so hard together it was frightening. And they flew it over the Kremlin. They could see the panty lines themselves even on the Russian mistresses flying over silently with impunity. The SR-71 Blackbird, black magic and voodoo to the adversary looking down on them and looking down onto the land where the metal had come out of the earth itself. And the shape of it filled in with hard waters of the seeping metals in the rain, long sold and dispensed among the dachas of the rich anyway. The shape of the waters it left made the shape of sadness and hunger and bleakness that echoed into the sound of the falling and the failing of the USSR. Finally succumbing to the pride, stopping to feed their poor countrymen, let the bastards fly over us and let them see us like the children of God then, hungry and wet and poor. The blackbirds seen in the dirty puddles, distorted in the ripples, racing across the surface of the puddle in reflection. A reflection of our guiltiness. The Russian proverb. The starving thief who stole three kopecks is hung from the bastard's filthy rope. 
while the one who stole a polytonic, 50, basks in the praises. Far off the beaten path, a flight to Anchorage, Alaska, then to the remote King Salmon, and then finally to the even more remote location. For a base fee of $1,000 per day, you can partake in world-class fishing and some of the most pristine waters with all five species of Pacific salmon. Between May and September of 2019, an estimated 2.26 million visitors traveled to Alaska. Approximately $2.2 billion was spent, people arriving by cruise ship, ferries, driving, or by plane. The telecommunications company was good standing friends with the budget oversight committees. And when the Air Force long disabled the little air base, it became so exclusive now. Million dollar jet engines strapped on a float plane. The company with the satellites and with the strands of glass stretched across the seafloor. The old base is still governed, but now in the bustling of $1,500 fly rods and businessmen speaking freely out in the open, naked, before all creation. The old airbase has a corporate logo across the old guardhouse, no longer needed. They so absolutely and thoroughly have fucking won. All the doors being opened from the inside for them. Floating on the river with endless salmon, lazily dying underneath the surface, a sea of dullards and simpletons huddled in the sports department at Walmart. Never knowing the spline of the rod and the joy in the children's eyes out here in the pristine, world-class fishing. And the natives still ply by in their little ramshackle john boats. The million-dollar sea otter flying over them now, zipping across the dirty ripples of the shitty little wake. A reflection of the way that always will be, apparently. All is still in the pristine. Alone, there isn't a soul around for miles. The dew gathered upon everything. In the grandfather's thoughts, he is sitting at the break table in the dim overhang, dry from the morning drizzle. His lodge pilot's breakfast sits before him invisible in the fog in his eyes. The water on the leaves and on everything is continually popping in wet flickers of impacts of the slant rain falling quietly. It happens both at once. He is there with his grandchildren. They are laughing and the life of the light of the world is in their eyes and in his heart. Both at once he feels them now when they were quiet after the funeral for days it was to be expected. Periodically all of it coming into view in the passing mist. The clouds above scatter in every direction, the layers looking down through passing holes. The ground below is covered in bushes now and it's abrupt. The old waters floating in the wind drift are cunning and aloof. Wispy ribbon of vapor spins slowly just before you like a gypsy girl dancing. Distracted in the background, a gathering of the cloud ceiling, heavy and giant sagging concrete colored cloud. The bottom of the sacks are black, and you can see that under them has become like the night. How beautiful the sight of it, across the reflection in the glass of your eyeballs. 
When he feels them now it is despair, and all of the bitter fears that they will lose one of the kids to anger, and what it will do to their lives, one to sadness, becoming unconnected, and maybe the other to a world that messed up their life, and they burn their chance to live their own. The bright fluorescent bulbs make this soundproof federal room seem stagnant and unused, as the employee from out at the fish camp tells a story from out in the pristine. He is here now at the sterile interview table speaking of a few days before the accident. Out on the float dock under that beautiful red wing of the doomed Five Alpha, the NTSB investigator has paused in his pen, stopped on the fiber paper mid-word on the report. The employee describing the way the clouds were in the old pilot's eyes that morning, and that out of nowhere something poured over a ledge, developing so suddenly upon the grandfather. When he'd asked the pilot casually about his son-in-law, he said he was worried about his daughter. They had three kids. Have three kids. The two of them had both been waiting on the dock together for only about 15 minutes before he untied and flew away. That was the day before the accident. He said he saw the pilot fight back tears and shook his head. When the grandfather stepped under the float, the plane rocked more than usual on the water. Oh yeah, the tie line was flying out behind the float plane when it went over the trees. Up over the trees into a light gray, the water droplets falling off of the tie line down again. The employee snaps his fingers that he'd remembered it. They were talking regular, then the voice in his breath failed, and his chin had quivered, and then he'd cried. It was when he'd said the word grandchildren. The NTSB investigator is away somewhere for a moment in his mind. The employee blinks, looking now for what? And the pen starts instant, scribbling precisely and continuously for what seemed like quite a bit of time. The morning of the accident, one of the other pilots was scheduled to be dropped off at another location by the accident pilot. He has his own rituals before he flies. It will be a little different climbing out of an airplane, then begin all of the checklists and warm-ups on his plane. It feels odd. It feels like a place where it's hard to see bad habits, somehow. The pilot was coming down the wooden walkway down towards the docks, going over his gear and his flight plan in his head. Fifteen minutes before they should be on a heading towards his plane. He's already in game mode. As he comes around the corner of the log cab and he sees the grandfather. Sitting at the break table in the dim overhang dry from the morning drizzle. The other pilot approaches cautiously on the downwind leg looking down on the breakfast table. The lodge pilot's breakfast is mostly untouched. He tries his best to be polite, especially in the mornings, so he only asks if they were still set for the 8.45. Maybe the guy had gotten up extra early and did all the pre-flight stuff before breakfast. They took off without incident 32 minutes later the first of only three flights of the day for the accident pilot. 
The flight was bumpy, the two pilots agreed, a bit too bumpy for passengers, if there had been any. Good intel, though, to pass on to them, of what to expect on today's flight. When he got dropped off, they shook hands. The other pilot said flatly that in his handshake and overall, that the grandfather didn't have as much energy as he did before. Heading back to the lodge, the accident pilot went over the horizon of birch trees and spruce. The man on the ground began through his rituals. This was the second flight of the day. The man on the ground was unsettled, and he said as much now in the interview, that the pilot sitting at the table under the dim overhang had no inclination to finish up breakfast and get the plane ready on time. But the thing is, the lodge manager says that he talked face to face with the accident pilot 7.30 that morning, like they do every morning. So... Even out in the Eden of the Salmon Rivers, when the conditions aren't ideal, it can be bleak at times. But when the salmon run is at its peak, like it had been for the last few days, the short flight out to the river can be made at any time of the day. Within 20 minutes of landing on the river, the group limits out on the legal catch anyway. There's no rush. And there's no incentive for the pilots to fly in the bad weather either. They get paid on a regular schedule, nonetheless. The fishing yesterday was fucking phenomenal. The weather is closed in this morning, no rush. They expected the weather to clear, and even if it takes until after lunch, that's okay. Just after lunch, the word went around that the pilot said it looked good enough to fly. The passengers popped full-strength Dramamine after yesterday's bumpy ride. It was a little too rough. And everyone was giddy with a hop in their step, loading the gear into the plane. A father slaps his adult son on the shoulder and says something and they both smile. An older daughter watches her mother, the successful lawyer, climb into the plane. She was watching her mother's foot come over the ledge of the wet floor. The daughter had banged her shin just before. The motor was spinning up. The smell of jet fuel seemed strong, out of place on a bush plane. But wait till you feel the power. And it even comes with reverse. The decorated lieutenant is an older man now. He grabbed the handle and climbs up into November 455 Alpha. Hoisting himself up into the plane, the person behind him sees the back of his head. He looks briefly around. A speck of water is on the edge of his glasses. He jostles around and buckles up the restraint, no doubt grunting. Drowned out, though, in the whine hum of the jet turbine coming into power. There are times when you must see the world like a god, and all the intricacies before your eyes unfolding. Nine people were on board the small plane piloted by 62-year-old Terry Smith. The lodge run by GCI had 48-year-old Dana, GCI executive, and her 16-year-old daughter, Corey, in the elite fishing group. With the long-serving Republican senator at the time, Ted Stevens, and the Deputy Director of NASA, James Mohard. Bill Phillips, the father of three Division 1A college sons, was on the trip with his 13-year-old son, Willie. And finally, the CEO of the second largest aerospace and defense company in the world, Sean O'Keefe, and his 17-year-old son, Kevin. The fishing had been great, and the weather was so relaxing. The lodge truly was a world-class resort. 
The jet engine burns gas continuously in a hum or a whine. It never stops to belch out the carbons in a burst of exhaust like your car does. So the jet engine, there is a constant twisting river of hot air, and in it is flowing strands coming from inside the engine. Streaks of byproduct. The jet fuel ignites as it's falling into the rushing wind. It throws off carbons when it is starting. Later, the fuel will burn completely, but at the startup, it blows tiny carbon particles into the jet stream. The light is trapped inside the motor, pouring off of this river of fuel coming to power in an endless cracking flame. The carbon particles are the only something that all of that light can finally shine on in the combustion chamber. So brightly, they say, that the walls of the turbine can become damaged, squinting in the brightness, tiny cracks appearing over time. So they add additives to the fuel and make adjustments. And the carbon particles is chemically decreased by a noticeable amount. And the residuals pass through, preserved and invisible to the light, floating by in the sun. And with the other fine microscopic slurries of used, unused and part used fragments of oil blowing safely out of the engine into the airstream instantly gone and running the gray tinged ribbons of hot air up here in the cold blowing over the windshields at times but not that big of a deal the plane is a big float plane and it is sitting on the water the plane makes new noises and it begins to go into reverse somehow on the water backing out like a boat car no shit the power goes up, the floats are skidding across the water, plowing two troughs in the river, finally the last of the float tail, mostly held up by the wings now. The last of the float, still supported by and connected with the earth. And then it is whisked above the water, the tie line is flying out behind the float, as the plane goes up and out over the trees. The NTSB investigator was rocking his foot back and forth quickly under the table. As the good friend of the accident pilot was answering their questions regarding the message that he deleted from his answering machine, he came in and saw that there was a message from his buddy who flies out at Agulawak. He says the red light was blinking on the machine, so he pushed it. He remembers on. His good friend had left a message asking him to look around in the stores, maybe the auto parts stores. He was looking for something like Rain-X, or ask around, he said, for something that will really work. His foot is still under the table. The investigator is looking right through his own eyes and through the table. And then his foot begins to shake again. This is the third flight of the day. Ted Stevens, the longtime pilot and advocate for Alaska, was very protective of the pilots, since much of the economy relies on air transportation, such as goods to villages and transporting three-quarter of a million visitors by plane. The person sitting behind the pilot on this driver's side of a turbine sea otter. When they were flying, he looked out the window and looked down and saw fog under the plane. When he looked out, he saw only white. 
He doesn't remember any condensation running across the glass, though. There was a burp of Dramamine. His head was nodding in the bumping massage chair attached to the floor. He comes out of it. His eye is open. Of course he sees only white. His eye is so juicy he thinks it's open. He gave her a good three to four minutes. And then he was dead to the world. In the wreckage of a plane, you pull out all sorts of things. Everything that was in there. When you were all safe and warm. In this kind of wreckage, there are certain things that have a little R in a circle next to their name. Registered trademark. The guys digging through the evidence of this accident, they went into the pile in certain beelines, scanning the mound of where it should be. A thing that has the little R next to its name. And then there it was, thankfully. An electronic device. The damaged plastic said, Sky Connect with the little R next to its name, and it said it with broken teeth. The brochure reads, SkyConnect Tracking System. Manage your fleet with a complete Iridium satellite tracking and communication solution. Iridium. It's one of those nearly unworkable metals, you know. Do you remember the story of the meteor coming down over the craning neck dinosaurs? It's iridium that they were looking for. As iridium mostly comes only from meteors. Every time they find a load of it. They date it as a new beginning for the world at that time. In the scatter of the metal across the landmass. Iridium with the R looking down again. Above us forged into a satellite. Across from that on the brochure is a red accent that says Total Situational Awareness. SkyConnect tracking system enables any equipped aircraft in the world to be tracked in real time via the Iridium satellite network. The technicians made the disconnections and scuttled this device onto the table. And they brought it back and hooked up the broken Frankenstein brain to a fake screen, a big one, on the wall. And when the talented technician brought it to life, a computer program went in like a combat surgeon and scooped up every bit of data and pieces of brain material and secured it. The big screen was lit now just as it had been the moment that it had stopped. It showed a field of red and it shows the Mucklung Hills just under the passenger side wing marked out in red for danger on the screen frozen in time. This little thing had been pulsing to and fro with those deviant Iridium satellites. They are somewhere, and they are everywhere. As the captured data is collected in the bin now and it is restored to a state so that it can be analyzed. This thing was retrieved from under the plane. The motor still running had part broke off and held onto the floor with its lower main mounts to the plane. The motor swinging down now, the propeller tip passing through moss, then mud. Thicker soil than hard pack and stone went the motor underneath. The sound of running over a large engine at over a hundred miles an hour. This accident right here might change the laws on requiring flight recorders on every single plane. 
The timer on the data collector dings that it's ready, and they open the lid. Ready to live, breathe, process this information for weeks. They open the bin, and it's nearly empty of any useful information. A location, an altitude, and a heading. Once. Every three minutes. That's about it. And there are only five of these blips in the empty bin. The technicians looked around in disbelief, come to find out later the pilots would still have kept the device plugged in. But the company had cancelled the software licensing with the SkyConnect. The thing operated now just as a blip recorder. The older guys said it would drain the batteries on the planes all the time. It was always trying to call home to mama. Pinging off of this satellite, pinging off of that satellite, total situational pain in the ass, the one guy had said, laughing out loud and coughing after. The thing really is not that big of a deal. Not only that, but when the technicians labor day and night over, under, inside the firewall and the instrument panel, looking at and testing, rebuilding each thing. Once in a while, one of these things repaired tells you something, and it becomes like you are behind the instrument panel, looking out from the hole where this instrument once sat, and through that very narrow square or circle you can see blurred around the edges, the doomed passengers, most asleep. The technicians trying to rewind to that very last moment, right before they made contact. There was mud and debris still on this top piece of the dash they found. One guy had made a beeline for it, and found it ripped off and on its own in the mud. It was a white square button combo, and on the white dirty square it had two lines written all in capital letters. The first was T-E-R-R, -R, Terrain. The next was I-N-H-B, Terrain Inhibitor. When the technician opened the clusters of electronics neighboring this dirty white button, the other ones also had lights in them too. The technician noted that they were normal and that the filaments of the lights were coils of wire just like from the factory. But when he opened the terrain inhibitor, strung between tiny electricity poles, the coil wire must have been red hot. When the nose of the plane went in hard, the red hot jelly rope in the light bulb stretched out against the back wall and parts of it broke off longer now than it ever could have been, coming in at over a hundred miles an hour, and the sudden stop, even without the Iridium satellites. There was one button that said, pull up, and it has its own alarm buzzer and a light. The T-E-R-R -R button, terrain, always spooks the executives with every little hill that you fly over. Those bulbs? were beautiful though, like from the factory it says in the report. The inhibitor turns all of that stuff off. Every time you turn the machine on, it has absolute freedom to warn you and scare the occupants into taking corrective measures and maneuvers. Looking out through the hole in the dashboard, the investigator can see up that the inhibitor light was on, and the pull-up one and the terrain one cold and dead. 
At least two alarms are sounding and crashing inside the computer, set on silent now, even as the device shattered free after impact, the engine falling away and under, the instrument panel sucked down to part follow it, sucked under the floor, following the spooling jet engine. The entire front of the plane, and everything even near this little device, is crumbled up somewhere under the wreckage, coming to rest on top of it. The technicians leaning over the instrument panel, clusters of broke-off, shattered, and twisted things. The worst part is, even without the alarms, this device with the screen literally was right in front of the guy's face. Monday, August 9th, 2010, around 6 p.m., the GCI Lodge manager called the fish camp to find out the time of the returning group. It was then they realized the plane had never made it to camp. Soon, the hunt for the missing plane was underway, with locals taking to the airplanes and helicopters. By 7, the FAA officially declared the plane missing, and within the hour, two local pilots had located the wreckage, 18 miles from the lodge. 13-year-old Willie was in and out of consciousness, but he could see the lifeless bodies around him. His dad had raised the boys to keep their wits about them and keep going. Willie began to ask when he saw his dad's friend pinned in the wreckage. The reality set in, and it was clear, Bill, Willie's dad, did not survive. As the rumble of the search planes came closer, Willie worked his way out of the torn plane on the steep hill, waving his white sweatshirt at the planes. The same device on the right side of the plane had nothing at all. The altimeter had a DH feature, which is decision height. You set the DH, and if you get busy and cross that line, it lights up and reminds you it's time to go higher immediately. A nice feature. Too bad they can't make a better filament for their light bulbs, though, because the one behind the DH is all stretched to hell as well. The person on the left side of the plane had already flown numerous times this route, more in the back, though. He noticed that they had taken off and was following a slightly different path than normal. Instead of out over the flat, they were now over a bit of more terrain. The pilot had told him it was to avoid some wind and weather in the normal path. The visibility was fine, he said when they asked him. Of only the five blips that the Sky Connect actually captured, the father on the right side of the window was only there for about three and a half of them. He was puzzled at the strange way the moisture was beating on the windshield and running across it. His eyes became juicy, distracted then by the Dramamine burp. Ten minutes in, and he was out like a light bulb. 16-year-old Corey Tinsdale wanted to study medicine and was a volunteer at the Newborn Intensive Care Unit. She was distinguished in debate, a great joy to her family, particularly to her mother Dana, who was a top executive and instrumental in Alaska Communications for many years. Both perished, along with Senator Stevens, Bill Phillips, Willie's dad, and the pilot, Terry Smith. The pilot and his wife had learned a lot that weekend in March, when a small blood vessel had burst in his brain three and a half years ago. The brain itself is like tofu, but the things that it can see and imagine are astounding. 
in putting somehow as a vision and an identity, a thing in there, with emotions. The smallest of threads of blood carrying oxygen and the ancient iron to everywhere and to everything. Tiny blood vessels bringing depleted iron blue to the touch, oxygen gone, and carbons riding along, waiting to be expelled. Their seat is forever warm from the previous rider. The two tiny blood vessels are almost touching, pounding their tiny ears in the pressure, and as the two pulse thread ropes, one blue right beside the one red one, spark electricity creates thunderclouds in our brains between them, and we become us. As fast as the switch of a television screen at three o'clock in the morning. Some people have a family history of men falling ill and passing in their prime, so it seemed. This pilot did. As the blood vessel ruptured, a few things started to happen. The little brain cells and whatever job it is that they do. The pressure drops as the thread, so small, is no longer filled. The wet little straw is empty and it's pouring out into the creases of the tofu brain and it fills up a little blood balloon inside your head. Of all of the times when you hear about a stroke, this type accounts for only 10 to 15% of them. But the people that do have an intracerebral hemorrhage, 40% of them die in the first month. 75% of anyone who lives will have long lasting effects noticeable in their lives. When the lifelong pilot went and applied for his airman certificate, like he had for years, they denied him. And he had an excellent job at one of the big airlines. When stuff like this happens, you have to go in and see the flight surgeon. You feel just like a little boy with your hat in your hand. The pilot mustered his chin and went down to 222nd West 7th Avenue into Suite 14 into the glass building across from the museum downtown. And the flight surgeon pulled down from the library wall a big dusty book of the FAA regulations. The book said that after any ICH, the pilot needs to wait a minimum of two years before eligible for his airman certificate. What do you call an airman stuck on the ground? Well, the airline called him in June and told him not to worry about coming in. Wait at home a while, and we'll sort this out. The wife tilted her head when she pulled the envelope from the mail. With the airlines company letterhead. It was a cold way to send him his last paycheck. And she walked back into the house, older now, but somehow a worried young mother, wiping her hands on a towel. She made him his favorite dinner, and watched him watch his favorite show. She swallowed an ice chunk in her throat when she rubbed his shoulder. The tear was on the back of her hand when she kissed his soft temple. The plane was up a little in the front and climbing to the left. This pile of debris was at that moment a perfectly good plane. The lodge manager and his wife were out on a scenic flight of their own when the call came in and he dropped her off just before the sunset, and she had a small amount of medical supplies with her. The doctor being escorted 
by a younger man. Hiking through the pristine snagging brush, when she came around the side of the red metal siding crumbled, the front of the plane was missing and there was a guy strapped in the chair, exposed, dripping rain, blood becoming tint in the water. Dripping down upon the clusters of broken instruments and on and through the ripped airframe, percolating down through the separated anvil strength of the motor mounts in mocking drips, down, under, to the shattered engine and the Frankenstein SkyConnect scream, and the wife's husband. She said he always had his glasses. He had one clear one and one tinted one at all times. One of the few questions that they couldn't answer on the forums in the report was which one he had on. It didn't apply. Any of the four examiners who did their own autopsy on the grandfather pilot stared blankly at the answer, contemplating the wording. Texas Turbines put out a voluntary notice to all airmen operating any one of their T-Turbine engines. It said something about visibility, routine cleaning, of course it referred any use of chemicals or surfactants to the manufacture of the glass product. They put jet engines on float planes, they're not chemists. The most reassuring part, almost, is the computer model that builds a world inside the computer. It recreates the mountains and the weather reports for the day of the accident. Turbulence, wind, drift, trim settings. They ran it over and over, watching the small plane, beautiful and doomed, as it pummeled into the Mucklung Hills over and over again. They found a very strange intricacy in the last three minutes stretch on the Sky Connect. When the passengers were all asleep, safe and warm, that if the pilot made no inputs to the throttle, the plane would have continued on into the periodic bump drop of turbulence. The one wing comes up a little late and the compass slowly loses a few degrees. If the pilot never touched the rudder pedals, the moving of the air is cold, falling down. It created a small pressure variance, sucking the plane just a few more degrees. And if he never touched the wheel, the wind crossing the vein, the compass slowly spinning across the slow dashes under the needle. And when the screen of the sky connect is changing to red, and it is clanging and the alarms are crashing behind the quiet humming inhibitor button. The decision height on the altimeter is glowing and pleading for their lives. Approaching decision height 2500, 1500, 400, 300, 200, no matter how many times they ran the model, 30, 20, the plane crashes into that same spot. And the freaky thing is, that in the last stretch between blip four and blip five, it's as if that in the pilot seat, there's nobody at all.
inches in mercury. 